0: And now is a good time to welcome everybody back then. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the second half hour of Green Rush Live, our regularly scheduled, every Friday afternoon, really live, Business of Cannabis talk show. We have an open chat room. And of course, if you have any questions for our panel, be happy to share with them because now I can actually see the chat room, as opposed to not being able to see the people I'm talking to on Zoom who are a good 15 feet away in a very tiny little box. So welcome back to Green Rush Live. I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media, joined every Friday afternoon by my guest hosts, Josh Kincaid and Doug Miller from New Jersey and Washington State, because we love to connect both coasts. And now we're going to welcome in three guests this half hour, Um, one well, one is no stranger to the show, one is always welcome on the show, and I'll let Scott Moskal from Burns and & Levinson and Jacques Santucci from Opus Consulting figure out which one that is, but I also want to bring in uh, John Morier. Is it Morier or Morier?
1: Maurier, you got it right the first time, Jimmy. Thanks.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. I put the little, a little Frenchie on there because, uh, after all, uh, Jacques is with us, and you guys are in Portland, Maine, and after spending 11 years there myself working for the CBS affiliate, I know... That the French Canadian is a major player in Maine. That's for sure. Maine business, politics, culture. So, uh, bo- all three of you guys, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. So, the reason why I have you coming in here is to explain how Ermont, which was one of the first uh, uh, dispensaries in Massachusetts, and now has another distinction, I guess, about being one of the first to go into receivership. Who wants to take me through the history of what happened to Ermont, well, Jacques? So how,
2: how about I explain who Ermont was, and then you explain how the receivership starts? Started? Uh, sounds like a plan. Maybe you should have your own show, Jacques, which I've been
0: talking that's to you right. about for a long time. Uh,
2: Go ahead. I used I used to have a ra- I had a radio show for ten years, uh, so I would be you know that's I like that kind of stuff. So but you, you so, don't have a face so, for radio, so- though, Jacques. I know that. <laughs> Thank okay, you. I'm comfortable saying that. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Did you hear a joke face made for radio? No. no. <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. Well, I have the accent. That's good. That's right. um, yeah, so Airmont was uh, one of the first uh, medical marijuana licensees in Massachusetts, uh, license number seven, uh, starting in 2016 uh, out of uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, South of Boston. Um, they were one of the first ones to get off the ground and, and open uh, vertically integrated Uh, A few rooms growing in the back, uh, packaging, and then the storefront uh, out of uh, the parking lot in, uh, I know, just off the highway. All right. So, how did they get in trouble? Who's next?
0: Scott?
3: So, so they had a a debt facility uh, with Tilt. um, And I think many people remember the Dan Adams story. Uh, regarding tilt and and what happened and you know we we could just go from there but but to make the long story short my clients purchased the debt uh, from tilt um, and they you know made a demand on the note and made demand to have you know simple things like financial statements sent to us and And basically, Ermont said, go pound sand, or the the, the directors at Ermont was a not-for-profit. So we initiated defaults and accelerated the debt. And at that same time, the CCC had just initiated or passed a new provision to the regulations, which allowed for a receivership, a court appointee to be appointed under certain conditions. Um, So we went ahead and we petitioned the court for receivership to be placed on Irma. But before we could do that, um, the, the regulations provide for a method for a potential court appointee which, or a receiver to be pre-approved. Frankly, didn't have control over, you know, three or more dispensaries, the rule of three. And so um, Jacques um, employed or retained Kazner and Edwards, which John Morier, Uh, is here. And John and his partner, Michael Fencer worked uh, to get Jock pre-approved, submitted the appropriate paperwork. And I think Jock was the first one to be pre-approved. I think there might be others since. Um, But once we got that pre-approval, Teneo filed a petition in late July of 2021 seeking to have a receivership imposed. And it took us a few hearings before the court before they granted the relief we sought, and and the entity was put into a receivership in November twenty twenty one, at which point Jacques as receiver, took over, and and John Mori as his counsel helped guide helped guide Jock through the process, the legal process of the receivership and the court hearings.
2: Thank you. And I should add, uh, Jimmy, that uh, one of the uniqueness that uh, Opus Consulting, our firm, has is that outside of the experience we have in cannabis we've been working on distressed assets and and business management for now over 13 or 14 years so you know that was a a good way to bring two set of skills right the cannabis knowledge and the process of of distressed assets and receivership and bankruptcy work under under that process for airmont
0: there you go and and, and john i want i want to bring you in um as well on this and and ask you a question since I have two lawyers in the room, uh, are the courts have the courts eased up at all on any of these um, receiverships and and disputes that are coming now before them? Uh, has it eased up at all? Are they accepting the fact
1: that cannabis is here to stay? So I, I think that's a, that's a great question, Jim. And there's a um, a difference between the federal courts and the the state courts in states where it's legal. So, you know, uh, if this was the bankruptcy lawyer podcast, I could go on for an hour about attempts to expand jurisdiction and bring cases, uh, insolvency cases into the bankruptcy courts. But for all intents and purposes, the federal courts are shut to cannabis businesses. And in some cases, even, you know, employees of cannabis businesses and the like. So this case uh, was brought in Massachusetts state court and Mass has had medical legalization Uh, since the referendum went in 2012 and has had adult use uh, at least voted on by the voters at the end of 2016. So Mm -hmm. they're used to it. But that said, this was the first cannabis case in Massachusetts state court of a receivership type. So it was the first time the Cannabis Control Commission was involved. It was the first time the state superior court was involved. Uh, And so, uh, and it was the first time some of these regulations were you know ever used uh, as far as, as cannabis? So the court was reluctant and curious. Um, as Scott mentioned, it took a while between the filing of the case and the actual appointment of the receiver. Uh, the court gave the debtor plenty of chances to uh, produce its financial information that was required and to uh, make payments of both you know its creditors and its taxes. But as the, uh, as the creditor, uh, excuse me, as the debtor, Aramont um, was digging a slightly deeper hole week in and week out, uh, rather than uh, getting uh, improved, uh, the court finally pulled the trigger and said, yeah, you need a receiver. And what the receiver does, um, it, we there's an order of the court that sets forth what their duties are. Um, and it basically runs the operation in place of its management, or in place of its board of directors in this case, so the court got comfortable with it. But it took a lot of walking through. It took some dealings with the commission uh, and their staff to, you know, uh, find our way together um, and uh, and then set it up. After that, we reported regularly to the court and to the other parties, and you know, everything uh, we needed to do, we had to either follow the order in place or ask for more permission.
3: I think one of the things
1: that is important also
3: why it took so long, um, Massachusetts in sort of non-cannabis world, we don't have a receivership statute. So, for instance, in Washington State, there is a you know, statute, you know, 20, 25 pages long, which provides for a procedure for receiverships. And then the regulation, the uh, Washington cannabis regulations just kind of added to that. So there's always been a path, whereas in Massachusetts, you know, receiverships are very rarely granted to begin with, um, or very rarely, or not, I shouldn't say very rarely, but it's not as common as many other states which have a separate receivership statute. Yeah. So we had to together. together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's pluses and minuses to that. I mean, in Massachusetts, <laughs> since we're just going over a rule that says a court can appoint a receiver, that's almost the entire rule right there, then the powers you have are the ones you could convince a judge to give you. You've either negotiated with some of the parties or or, uh, had an argument in front of the court about what's appropriate. Uh, And so we were really able to design what the receivership for Aramont would look like. We gave the receiver, uh, we suggested that the court give the receiver the power to run the place, perfect. That's uh, a necessary thing. But we also uh, suggested that the court give the receiver the power to market the business for sale, to do uh, other asset sales and the like. Um, But then the court, uh, and we suggested this as well, we agreed to it, but the court required us to go back to court for actual permission to sell. You could offer the business for sale, but we needed a court order in order to sell it. So that's kind of the example of the the push and pull uh, that goes into, you know, a build your own receivership in a state where you don't have a a specific statute,
3: although I will say we 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 scoured uh, other courts for their receivership, typical receivership orders in a, a cannabis and actually the CW Nevada case, um, their receivership order. We took a lot from as well. Um, so we you know, we I would love to say we created it all by ourselves, but there was a lot of press yeah. in the West that we were able to cobble together.
0: Speaking about West, we have somebody in Washington State on this call in this on this show, Josh Kincaid, and and Josh, I'm sure you have perused that 25 pages that is available for receivership in Washington State. And don't forget to unmute yourself.
4: Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, I was going to recite that verbatim, actually, Jimmy, um, but <laughs> we don't have enough time, so I think I'm just going to skip straight to the question. I, I'm hoping to get some some of you uh, attorneys to speculate on the motive because I don't understand the intent on why somebody would let that default and go into receivership when you've got a really hot item that you could probably profit on. Even if you don't know what you're doing, you can maybe sell that. And so I'm curious, two-part question. One, why didn't he, that individual sell? And two, What's going to be your strategy now? Are you going to be a turnaround strategy, or are you going to just uh, be a flip?
1: So uh, Scott's got an actual client that could actually uh, divulge its thinking, and uh, maybe I'll do him the favor of taking up the speculation uh, cudgel you, you laid down. Um, we came into this in the middle, um, and uh, you know I think to me your last show, the folks from Upwise said you know there's a lot of creative. Non-traditional financing out there. Airmont had that kind of financing. Yeah. Um, it was cash flow to begin with, so if there wasn't excess cash flow, there weren't any payments. It had borrowed uh, initially uh, around ten million dollars. It had refinanced that for almost thirteen, and had never made a principal payment. So that debt had been accruing interest at a pretty good clip, uh, you know, above, you know, above LIBOR. Uh, and you know, whether it was above the cannabis market or not, it's a good question, but it was certainly above the commercial market. So the debt on this, the secured debt was, uh, well in excess of any reasonable sale value. So this had to be a short sale. Um, and then the tension between the directors, uh, and this was a nonprofit. So the directors didn't own the company, but they ran it. And the lender who wanted to maximize its recovery or Start getting paid something, um, that tension in there is kind of an impasse. Nobody will come in and refinance that debt; it was too high. Nobody would come in um, and try to convert this to for profit and put in, say, you know, a stock, an initial public offering, or some such a private offering to to put stock money in. And so it was just kind of sitting there without enough well, capital well, to grow. Well, and let, let me let me let me because some of this is public record.
3: Um, So my client bought the debt. My client had previously been involved with Tilt, had positions at Tilt, um, uh, actually had been involved with the the Irma relationship at one point. Um, They since left, they do not own anything of Tilt, uh, but they knew of the um, asset, potential asset. They bought the debt at a deep discount, uh, which that. Agreement has been published and referred to in court pleadings and CCC. Um, So it was a traditional loan to own. It's a traditional type of um, strategy employed in bankruptcy and workouts. You, their lender has some debt. Lender doesn't think they're gonna get par and more trouble than it's worth, So they sell the debt for another entity at a percentage, you know, small percentage of the actual UPB or unpaid balance. And my client thought either, A, they could force a sale and get a return, or if they had to, they've been operators in the past and they would essentially take over the facility themselves and turn it around and flip it if need be. So,
2: and so this is Josh, all very
3: commonplace in the workout world.
2: And Josh, I think your, the, your question was also what happened. So the receivership, right? Uh, Ran its course, and one option was to, you know, sell the company, right? Like, or sell the asset, like Scott said. So over a year ago, we looked at the different options, and then uh, put the assets on the market. uh, Asked, I think, twenty or twenty-five people around us, and uh, and got a, a few offers. And then since last summer, the offers have been, you know, vetted by the court, approved by the court, vetted by the CCC, approved by the CCC to get to a closing uh, last Thursday.
0: There you go. That's called cannabis standard time. You know how that works guys. <laughs> However long it takes is what the time, yeah. um, as you mentioned stocks, we've got a, a stock expert on our show on our regular basis. That's Doug Miller. Uh, Doug, I'm sure
5: you have uh, questions for the group. Go ahead. Yeah. Can you actually make it from a nonprofit to a profitable organization? Uh, because you were saying it's a, it's a nonprofit. So when you take it over, can you actually change it around now, the structure?
3: Yeah, yeah so when the when, um, 2016 referendum was in, uh, put into place in 2018 through, was it 94G or whatever it was, they allowed, so originally medical, uh, medical marijuana facilities had to be not-for-profits. Um, as, as a structure, 2018 enabling legislation allowed them to convert to for-profit, um, but just because you're for profit for in terms of corporate structure doesn't always mean you're making a profit. <laughs> uh, so so here, um, you know, not for profit, they're basically you can't really buy a not for profit, more or less. So anyways, the assets were purchased um by Merrimed. So Merrimed, it's a publicly traded um MSO and they came in and thanks to Jacques, uh really they doing a great job of marketing the assets for sale. Um we we got a really nice well the receiver got a really nice offer um and you know it was a it was a great result for everyone from what i understand
2: and dog to your to your point so a nonprofit is just the way the fact that there is no owners but the company should be run just like any other for, for profit right you because then you know the cash that's left is reinvested or something like this right to continue to grow the nonprofit Absolutely. uh there there are some tax advantage when you con- when you convert to for profit there's there's some strategy to use because when you go to for profit you have a tax event so you know probably you don't want to talk about the the strategies here but then at some you know at that point right you can you can convert to a for profit by saying okay Doug and jack are now on 50-50 of whatever assets we have here and that's where the tax event is. But you but can go through in- that,
3: though, technically, because we had to do this when, when we converted a lot in 2018. You have to get a valuation yes. of, of the assets. And so those who take stock in the new for profit may have technically income attributed to them. So yes. there's a lot of tax issues. Strategies. In- yes.
0: Um, Could, I'm going to ask a question that I heard.
3: have home kids without a lawyer in account. How's that?
0: <laughs> Thank God that we have them. Been- All right question for you guys I happen to know that in the very beginning of the medical program in Massachusetts the dispensaries had to be vertically integrated they have to have their they had to grow their own stuff okay that's yeah. the best way to describe what vertical integration is and now there's some movement and I believe there's a bill in the Massachusetts legislature to allow the that that clause or whatever it was uh-huh. To be to be either changed or ignored, or you guys tell me uh, how did that impact this at all? No, this is a medical marijuana
3: facility, and the buyer actually wanted the extra grow space. So yeah. um, okay. at the end of the day, did that didn't really impact this? Okay, but it's a huge issue in the industry, obviously, and in a yeah. lot of folks. Aren't, aren't actually applying for a new medical license as much as you would expect because they don't want to spend the money on
2: cultivation especially with such a glut in the market yes right. and then airmond too had a nice building or, or is housed in a nice building who has you know uh, a a very good uh, setup for grow and and other activities so that was part of the of the attraction there
3: also yeah. that yeah. mezzanine right the room to grow yeah. up in, so
5: do you foresee any others going under, or they're gonna have to be taken yes. over? Yeah. Yes. I I mean, there's, there's a
3: lot of distress in the industry. Um, a lot of distress sales. I think you know the multiples have gone down from even a year and a half ago. Um, you know, on cultivation, it's it's very very. Uh, unless unless you're already established and have your brands and your market, it's it's very difficult to break in right now.
2: Um, and then. And then when you see that the wholesale price in Massachusetts and actually Michigan and other states, right, went from 4,000 to 2,000, if not 1,500, right? Uh, And then a lot of companies didn't have cost accounting in place. were not having any strategies to mitigate those risks. When you see that uh, people are buying less or, uh, you know, when you see that uh, some leases were signed three, four years ago, where, you know, it takes like 30% of profits or, you know, those all those things, right? They they're gonna lead to some businesses that gets in in a in a, you know put in a corner.
1: Well, at
0: least so we've where got. Where are you a, guys seeing? Go ahead, Josh. Go where ahead. you? Got,
4: well, I was wondering where where exactly are you seeing? What regions are you seeing that distress at? And what sectors are primarily the most distressed?
3: I think it's seeing it all across <laughs> more mature states. So you know, Michigan just had the Sky Mint partnership. <laughs> Uh, which is a huge deal, um, which we have are involved with, so I can't really talk about it. But um, you, you're, you're seeing it, like even in Colorado, you have grouped people throwing the keys and saying, we can't make a go. It costs us more to keep the lights open than we're selling. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they just close it down. And there's been some similar stuff in Massachusetts, actually.
2: Yeah, uh, And there's yeah. also
3: some, oh, I'm sorry, Jacques.
2: Yeah, Nevada, California has the same thing, all the mature states. You know, even in New England, you see some smaller operation trying to sell, where they were, you know, really going super well a couple of years ago. The reason they're selling is they're starting to see that their their margins are, are 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 you know getting smaller and smaller, and they're trying to get out of it. So but, different stages, but but also different. I think it's because you know you also have to take
3: into account the new states coming online. So a lot, I mean, there is limited capital, limited liquidity, but well, there was some enthusiasm for New York, New Jersey, and we can talk about that as a whole different thing, but you still have Maryland. Um, Missouri has turned into a nice little investment spot. Um, we have a client there and they're doing like two to three times revenue in not the best of places. And there's a lot of optimism, in Pennsylvania, and Ohio. So it's kind of like people are playing the map, right? And, and they're trying to go to wherever place is hot. And that does in fact, or, or, of fact, I should say, where people want to deploy the limited amount of capital that there exists.
5: No, I'm a I invest in things. I, I have a CBD company. I'm in New Jersey and I was gonna have a testing lab. I shot that down. I mean, we've I've had every single investment opportunity and I've told people, bigger people to me, like, yo, be careful because I'm telling you, this kind of business you have to know business. And yes. the cannabis industry. And a lot of people yeah. know business and they're great at it, but they don't know nothing yeah. about the cannabis industry and you're going to lose a lot of money. They'll bleed money out eventually. Yeah, well, see what's happening.
3: That's just really interesting because New Jersey just said, oh, we're going to issue more cultivation licenses. so We don't have enough stuff. No, we, have, we don't have enough product quite hmm. yet. But in a year, It'll all of that's going to be wasted money. Yeah, <laughs> nah, and, I should say all of it, but.
5: a lot of it but honestly i say new jersey kind of and they didn't mean to do it kind of right but they almost kind of did it right by limiting how many dispensaries now granted they're all basically mso's But a lot of like mom and pop people that had the opportunity that were trying to get in probably saved themselves a lot of money in the long run because they just wouldn't have made it. And uh, so, I mean, it it was, it kind of stinks. Like I say, I have the cure at least right around the corner from me (laughs) and the product is not good at all. I mean i i just call it how i say it but uh it is what it is and uh that's part of the whole mso thing and i think we're going to see better quality as they start but, shutting down yeah, and, gonna I have the...
3: the brand, and doug i think that's part of the branding or
4: brand
5: mm-hmm.
3: or brand with the you know the micro brews so the yes. micro, like the um craft cultivators and I yeah. think as people, I mean, we have to remember it's still a relatively new market to like ninety-five percent of the population. And I think as people get more used to the product, as we expand our industry, you know, past you know, people on this, you know, on this podcast to to like, you know, mom and dads and this and that will go in, I think you'll develop a little bit more of the ability to kind of like, you know, how um, Sam Adams first started, right? Or Harpoon and all that stuff. No, they're not exactly microbrews now, but they started as back in the day and had to educate people as to why they were different from Bud, you know, and Miller and whatever else was on the market then. And I think that's part of our industry struggle is we need to educate as well as just pretend we're just selling stuff at retail, right? right?
2: And that's the difficulty. Yeah. And Doug, I think going back to what you were saying earlier, or we you know, you got to go back to basics. It's business yeah. and then it's branding and it's customer experience, right? I mean, all the cannabis companies have been involved, vertically integrated or just retail. You know, you, you, we always had that, that strategy. Who's our customer, right? So, you know, uh, if we look at the beer or even coffee, right? Starbucks or Budweiser, right? They sell coffee to the masses and that's one segment. And it's probably the biggest segment, and then you have the small microbrewery or the, the local coffee shop, and they have a smaller segment. But if both are run properly with the right level of products and quality and a customer experience, then they'll do good. Trying to be a microbrewery and be in every supermarket in the U.S. is not going to work. Yeah, you can't do right? it. Or, or thinking that you can beat the prices of BudVisor by being a microbrewery, it's not going to work. So so I think the cannabis industry or or a lot of operators in the cannabis uh, world now are thinking they can do it all. And they don't understand that there are multiple levels or multiple types of buyers or and they're all good. They all want to have the product. We cannot sell to just one uh, persona. It's different persona, different locations. It's 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 multidimensional. And then if you apply the basics of business, then you find you find your way. Right. Like you were saying in misery. Right. or wherever you were saying, right? There's there's a location with somebody who's got the right store with the right product. But then if you do the same store downtown Boston or downtown Seattle or wherever it is, it's not going to work because you know it's the wrong market and the wrong the wrong people. So everybody's got to think about where do they want to be. But it is still retail, right? So location, yes. location, location. Yeah. You know, the
3: days where you can put a dispensary in Leicester and have you know five zillion people lined up are gone. And don't people I think don't remember that it's foot traffic it's you know parking customer customer,
2: it's a quality product and customer experience it it is you know uh every time yeah
5: oh it's yes no i'm all about having the quality the most quality if i'm going to be paying for it i want the most quality product and i always say you can't make quality medicine without the most quality product and I say it often on here, you need a lot of really knowledgeable growers to be able to pull it off. And that's where the MSOs go wrong. They make these huge facilities and they don't have the people to really operate what they need to do at that level. And it, it kind of goes wrong. And then you start burning through cash and uh, it ends up being a a bad scene. And then you have bad products. So you start getting a bad name, less customers and it's just that trickle effect.
3: But you have to give credit to Cureleaf, you know, how they closed their cultivation west of the, uh, west of the Mississippi, right? Uh, California, Nevada, or Colorado. And
5: Colorado, west. yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, they realized there was such a glut of product, and I have to imagine they realized they were becoming the Miller or, you know, bud of cannabis, and did they really, for what they were trying to do on the retail side and the branding side, did they really need to grow and spend all that money at the, at their grows out there.
0: Yeah. I do want to ask a question to the group here, because all of you are smarter than I am when it comes to business, I can tell you that. Not that that's a very high bar. That being said, how normal is this development of a, of a, a group in receivership in an early stage industry? Is this normal, or are we again seeing an exception being made because of 280E, because of the federal illegality status of it still. Um, and uh, you know what, I'm going to start, I want every one of you guys to give me about a 30 second answer so we don't go too far over the top of the hour. Josh, I want to start with you, because you're in a state that's had it legal for longer than any of us.
4: Yeah, I mean, it still happens. I know I know a farm that just got taken over in central Washington Um talking to the individual 18 people making pre rolls, spending a hundred thousand dollars a month on on labor it just doesn't work but when you don't take the advice and you keep going eventually that investor is going to come in and, and take their farm back so i've been seeing it for for a long time 10 years it's i don't think it's common because you should be able to sell if you can't figure it out but um yeah i mean there's sometimes it happens john go ahead
1: yeah, I, I think it's going to be increasingly common as the challenges the industry matures. There's there's more challenges. You've mentioned a couple of the things that are specific to cannabis: two ADE uh, barriers at the state line. But what uh, receivership does, and what you know, an insolvency practitioner can help with, is helping a distressed seller find a buyer for the assets. You know, the other alternative is just run straight at the brick wall, flame out, fail, close, done. And so right. the receivership is a much better option if uh, if there's something there to be, be preserved jobs, space. grow space and the like. At least they allow it. Scott,
3: you know, so John, and I actually worked together in a bankruptcy department at in, in the early 2000s. And at that time was the beginning of the um, uh, tech explosion. And mm-hmm. so many of those companies right at the beginning filed for bankruptcy because mm-hmm. they they went fast. They they got money, and then they couldn't, you know, fulfill on their promises to their investors. And so you ask, like, is this normal for such a young industry? I would say, yeah, I think, I don't think it's that young in in many, many ways. And I also think that, like, this is just, I don't want to say survival of the fittest, but it is survival of the fittest. Meaning that those who shouldn't, who don't understand business and don't understand the product and don't understand the ability to bring, typical marketing and branding concepts to the industry are just going to fail and it's better for them to fail quickly and those who could buy the assets and turn it around or you know i think that's important it shows the normalization of our industry if nothing
0: else and that's important i think I'm big on uh, normalization, not necessarily legalization. Jacques, your your observations about the industry right now? Yeah, I I would
2: agree with my colleagues here and everybody else. I, I've been, uh, you know, we started uh, in Maine in 2013, and when I was running my first models. Uh, I was thinking by two thousand and fifteen and sixteen we will start seeing things like this because uh, you know you could tell that the the, the market would change. So it took it a little bit longer, but we've been helping companies out of court, you know, probably for the past three years. You know, this this one is the first one that makes it to court, and it's a, it's a bigger one. But we had to deal with uh, smaller uh, uh, issues in the cannabis industry in the past three four years. So. I, I think it's it's classic. It's it's kind of normal. I agree with Scott about the technology. I think microbrewery is also uh, uh, going through the same thing. Right, we're starting to see small companies that are uh, struggling right now. They're not in court. I you know I bet you within a couple of years we're going to see a couple of of uh, microbrewery in New England that are going to go through the same thing, mm-hmm. and uh, so. And, and I think it's going to continue. And, and if, if the whole industry is working together and, and, and listening, I think we'll avoid a, a big... Because at the end, John was right. We want to preserve jobs. We want to preserve the market. We want to preserve the perception of the industry. So I think everybody's going to have to realize, let's all work together to smooth the path. You, you, know? Know what, you, know what,
3: you know what's interesting? Like two weeks ago, right, before SVB, you know, failed, Everyone was talking about VC, you know, the, the VC market, high tech. Now, after SVB fails, right, or and um, um, the other bank, was Signature Bank and First Republic, all of a sudden now there's not much liquidity in the high tech VC market. So, you know, it's business. Like, think it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. And what similarities there are, if any, with cannabis, with a lack of liquidity and with people who probably were surviving on fake liquidity or fake promises of extra money, but should have been out of business a long time ago. And you see that a lot in the VC. So this this is why I
0: this is why I preach the best investment in cannabis is a good law firm. Okay, it's very simple, (laughs) very simple. How about about a consulting firm, too? Okay. (laughs) Sorry. That's right. A consulting farm run by Jacques Santucci called Opus Consulting in Portland's a great investment. There you go. Jacques, thank you so much for joining us. John Morier, thank thank you you so much for joining us. Scott, always a pleasure to to see you. Um, We're going to continue with Dr. Marion McNabb and she has a new product coming to market that's called Undo. You figure out what it is and we'll bring in Dr. Marion McNabb after this. Don't go away.
4: Where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey Today on all major podcast platforms.